0: Hello everyone and welcome to Unconventional OT. This is a podcast run by two OTD students who are dedicated to advocacy. On this podcast, we will interview OTs who are bringing innovation to life, overcoming barriers and practicing in non-traditional areas. This podcast is intended to be used as a complementary tool for the website unconventionalot.com. The website provides resources and guidance to help reduce some of the preparatory work required for beginning to practice in non-traditional areas. Both the podcast and the website are components of a capstone project and will continue to be developed over time. The views of this podcast should be considered our own and are intended for educational purposes only. At times, this podcast may discuss topics that are not appropriate for children, So listener
1: discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Jess. Thanks for tuning in to our very first episode of Unconventional OT.
0: On today's episode, we will be discussing traditional and non-traditional occupational therapy with special guest, Dr. Kayla Collins. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Collins, and welcome to our podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. So, Dr. Collins is actually our doctoral coordinator and professor from the University of St. Augustine. She has supported us throughout our academic career at the university and has a plethora of knowledge. Although she is quite familiar to us, she isn't to our listeners. So, Dr. Collins, could you please share a little bit about yourself and your professional background?
2: Sure. Uh, As
1: Kate and Jeff said,
2: my name is Kayla Collins. I've been an occupational therapist for 10 years. My primary practice areas have been in geriatrics with a little bit of experience in pediatrics as well. I've been a faculty member at the University of St. Augustine for Health Sciences for the last seven years, and I have a practice specialty in the LSVT-BIG program, which is a program for people who have Parkinson's and in dementia caregiving and helping those who care for people with dementia to learn how to best support them as they age in place.
0: That's awesome. So it sounds like you've dipped your toes into a few different types of roles. Uh, which one has been your favorite so far and why?
2: So I really enjoyed being a faculty member. Uh, it's very uh, uh, exciting to see the light bulbs go off in students. and. Students always have such a passion for what they're going into, and it's also new and exciting for them that it keeps that excitement alive for the profession in me. And I love the opportunity for discovery that comes with being a faculty member because students teach me as much as I teach them. I get to learn some really amazing things from them from their backgrounds their experiences with different professions and with the OT profession and just from their life experiences that they bring to the program the questions they ask it gives me an opportunity to learn something with all of my interactions with them and also the opportunity to build programs and do scholarship and research related to the OT profession that's kind of unique to an academic setting where I really have the opportunity and I'm encouraged to do, move into new settings, to build programs in new areas, and to look at different ways for OTs to spread their, uh, their profession and their wings into other areas of practice. And that's a little more unique to, the, to being embedded in the job of being a faculty member than to other more clinically related occupational therapy roles.
1: Yeah, that so, makes sense. And kind of being in academia, you get to kind of dip your toes in even more settings. Um, what is your most challenging role been and why?
2: So I'm still performing as a contract therapist or what you'll often hear termed as a PRN therapist in a home health and outpatient setting. And it was a really challenging time recently during a big policy change with PDPM, the patient-driven payment model, and PDGM, which happened in home health, that there was a lot of anxiety. And actually, the change wasn't such of a challenge as the anxiety in the profession leading up to the change. Uh, It was something that I know has happened before when we've had different major policy and payment changes that have impacted the profession. But this is the first time I, as a therapist, have experienced that from a clinical practitioner setting. And being in those environments, there was just so much change every day, a lot of things coming, new things coming out all the time. And so there was the anxiety of your colleagues and anxiety of the facilities you were working in, and your own anxiety. And those, um, that policy and payment, the reimbursement components that don't come up as often in your mind when you're really deep into practice with a client and really engaged with a client were harder to push out and maintain that same connection with the client when you were in the moment. So I think that's been the most challenging time as a clinician that I've experienced uh, where it was really, it was so It permeated everything that we did, both in academics, because we had to talk about how we were going to educate on this and how much we needed to change about what we were teaching students in order to accommodate for these new policies. And then also within the profession, how many people were talking about it and how involved everybody was in it during that time period.
0: So, Dr. Collins, I want to go back to uh, you talking about your role as an educator a little bit. Uh, That's something that I've recently been considering as a possibility for my own future and uh, maybe giving it a try. How did you actually get started as an educator?
2: So before I went to Ot school, I actually was a substitute teacher and had planned to become a educator a educator in the K through 12 realm and had a teaching certificate and in an interviewing for different jobs as a teacher in the K through 12 area, I just realized that it wasn't fulfilling exactly all the things that I wanted in a profession. It was going to be a job and not a career that I really was you know, heavily passionate about. And I had always grown up in a therapy-oriented environment with a parent who was a therapist and always being in therapy areas. So I went to OT school, and it was just a pretty... Uh, immediate connection for me with faculty members and seeing what they did that I could blend these two loves. And so as an occupational therapist, you are an educator in general with your patients. And so it for a while sustained me to be educating within my professional within my practice setting with patients with caregivers, with colleagues. Um, But then I always still felt like there was a little bit more I could do to bring in education. And so I started to Um, just assist with different labs as needed with the university. And over time, that position grew into a full-time position. The more I did it, the more I enjoyed it. And the more I found that that was really my niche in occupational therapy was to become an educator. And so I I love the clinical practice piece, but it's really uh, met all of the professional goals that I had even before becoming an occupational therapist.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, some of your background and giving us insight into pursuing uh, one of your most favorite roles. Um, I'd like to go ahead and make the shift to talk a little bit more about occupational therapy now um, as as a profession in general. And so OT is often joked about as the greatest profession that no one really knows about. And Everyone tends to describe it a little differently. And I know that I even personally give varied descriptions. Um, I have a go-to definition that I feel encompasses the depths of OT, but then people are often like, okay, so what does that even look like? And then I have some short, simplified explanations where people sometimes just smile and are like, oh, you know, clearly having no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, But either way, I often feel like I never quite do the field of OT justice in my explanations because it is so diverse. Of course, there's a chance I may need to revamp my elevator speech, but I think it's very common for OTs to run into similar situations. So, Dr. Collins, how would you personally define what OT is and how does the obscurity surrounding our profession help or hinder it? That's a great
2: question. I think everybody does have a different definition and it always comes out a little bit different depending on the setting and who I'm working with. And that's exactly an OT thing to do is to tailor our definition to the population or the person that we're talking to. My general definition, if somebody were to ask me in an elevator or a friend would ask me on the street would be that OT helps you do the things that you need and want to do every day that make you who you are. And I always do try and give an example that is very person-centered. Again, it's just the OT in us to do that. Um, so whoever I'm talking to, I try and pick up on the cues of who they are and give an example that they could relate to so that they can really understand how OT is, uh, is person-centered and how it is it really is a flexible and vast career. And I do I think that... The good part about having a definition of so so loosely defined profession is that there's always new opportunities. There's there's not as many constraints around who we want to become as OTs and what we do with our professional careers because there's always opportunities for growth and change. But it does make you feel like you're constantly advocating for a profession and constantly explaining, which can be a little bit challenging when people come back with, oh, you help people get jobs or something like that. And you have to say, well, I do, but I also do all of these other things. And it's hard to, to really show people in a quick snippet how, in a quick definition, how great the profession is and how many things we really can do. So it's both a benefit and a barrier to us being uh, in so many different areas and able to be in so many different areas.
0: Yeah, I think the benefit of having so many options and, uh, you know, opportunities to grow the field is
1: a huge draw for many occupational therapy students. With OT being such a broad field, what would you consider conventional OT? And what is the difference between a job role, a practice area, and a setting? The
2: conventional OT to me is more of a medical
1: traditional
2: model where we think of occupational therapists and therapists. outpatient clinics, hospitals, working with people who are sick or disabled or injured, really more concrete roles about what we do, where we practice, and they're very governed by traditional medical practices and traditional policies and reimbursement models. Uh, The difference between a job role practice area and setting, there is a little bit of an overlap, but I would think that a job role is more uh, the things that you're doing, the, the actions that you're doing within your job, like educating, advocating, uh, practicing your clinical roles, whereas a practice area is more of the population that you're working with. It could be the geriatric population, pediatrics or mental health, among others. And then the setting is more of where you're going every day to do that job. Are you in the people's homes? Are you in an outpatient clinic? Are you in a hospital? Are you in the community? And so the conventional roles, it's easy for us to tick off those job roles, practice areas and settings because it's where we might uh, more commonly think about an OT being the same as we would commonly think about a lot of other healthcare professionals being in those roles.
0: So has conventional occupational therapy always been based mostly on the medical model or has that changed over time? It's really changed over time. Occupational therapy itself has changed so much
2: since what were originally the occupational therapists. And I feel like sometimes we're coming full circle as we do with most things over time. We started more in a non-traditional role assisting veterans assisting people with mental health disorders um, working more in the field during uh, wartime and so we we really working more on job roles we've really changed a lot uh, over that time because things reimbursement has changed and policies have changed and we've gotten so many more legislative, roles and responsibilities that have been, um, you know, we've advocated for them, but they've also been dictated to us. And there's been so many more professions that have come up over time that kind of, we are trying to all find our place and keep our place among the healthcare professions, but we're really coming back towards, again, a a movement to be more in wellness, health, um, community-based settings working in other types of roles. I think the biggest barrier to some of that and the biggest changes have come with how you get paid as an occupational therapist and what the regulations are around becoming and practicing occupational therapy, which aren't dictated by the individual. They're dictated by much higher levels than us and, and are part of why advocacy is so important for us because we really, we know where we want to be um, and we we've been a little confined at times by uh, decisions that are made at a different beyond us as individual OTs
0: sure so in present day what is generally considered more non-traditional ot so more non-traditional
2: things are, are, will be areas like community based settings maybe um drop-in centers, homeless shelters, areas where you don't typically see healthcare professionals always practicing, whether it's an OT or any other healthcare professional. It could be a community mental health site or um, a facility for where people live, a residential facility where people live who have chronic or uh, disabilities or people who have um, long-term care needs. And then also for people who are more marginalized, those tend to fall into the more non-traditional settings because being marginalized, they haven't had access to the same level of care. They haven't been as recognized by the larger healthcare community or the the larger community in general. And so those those populations tend to fall more into the non-traditional settings. Uh, areas of social justice issues, um, the homeless population, mental health populations, how we're treating those people. So, anything where there's a social justice issue, we, we're tending to see those are areas that have been neglected, and that's part of the issue. The social justice issue is that they've been neglected. Um, people that, and population settings that have been overlooked by the traditional healthcare professions. Uh, and traditional policies and practices are really non-traditional areas for OT.
1: Yeah, I think it's so important that OTs have adapted to reach some of those marginalized populations. Um, So can you explain some of the jargon surrounding non-traditional OT, such as emerging practice areas, role emerging practice, and role enhancing? Yeah, I think that you'll see a lot of the terminology overlapping
2: and used differently in different ways. But if I were to define emerging practice areas, these are they, these things like emerging practice areas, role emerging practice and role enhancing, they're all saying the same thing. We as OTs are trying to move into a new area. It's just the, the degree of that movement. So emerging practice areas to me is places where we don't exist. OTs are not part of this area. We really are wanting to be in working with the population or in the setting, but we're not there yet. So we're really pushing into a brand new role, whereas role emerging is more of an area where we have some kind of responsibility, but we're trying to develop a, a new practice within that, a new role for ourselves within an area where we may have some existing Um, kind of a our feet are wet in that area but we really haven't grabbed grabbed hold of what all we can do there and we can do more we want to be doing some different things in that area and so we can and we can really make ourselves more apparent and have more role in that practice area and role enhancing to me is where we we do have a pretty significant presence but we could be doing more different things to really make the the serve the population or the practice area in a better way. So we already have a good presence, but now it's time for us to kick it up a notch and really bring our full OT, everything that we can bring to the table into that practice area. So I think that those are that's the way that I would define it. And I'm sure there's a more eloquent way to define them in the literature, but that's how I think of those areas.
0: That's really great, Dr. Collins, thank you for clarifying uh, some of that terminology surrounding unconventional OT. Um, you spoke a little bit earlier about the impact that the current healthcare system and reimbursement has on OTs being able to pursue non-traditional practice areas. What are some other barriers uh, that they specifically face, and what are some ways that OTs overcome them? So I think that
2: there's two really important barriers, and one is reimbursement as OTs. We have to go to school for so long to become occupational therapists, and we really want to go into these areas, but at the same time, all that time in school costs us. And so we need to really make money, pay back loans, live once we get out of school, and these areas of non-traditional settings traditionally are underfunded and they are non-traditional because they're more emerging. They're, they're uh, working with populations who have been marginalized, who haven't gotten the services they've needed. So whatever funds they have, they're really giving back to the population in some form of services. And they don't necessarily have the money to fund an OT position because we're a little bit Healthcare professionals is they're a little bit higher paid, so it makes it difficult for you to sustain a position in some of these emerging practice areas when you can't make enough money to live and do the things that you want to do. So it's really important for occupational therapists to advocate for policies, especially related to reimbursement, that funnel funds towards some more of these nontraditional areas. It's also important for us to really show how valuable our role is in these settings and and really show what difference we can make so that it's worth the funds that the facilities who are so who are trying so hard to be very cautious with their funds to make sure they're doing the best for the populations they're serving, to show them that our value really it makes such a difference in the populations that they're serving. And then also for us to be our own advocates to look for other ways for us to be funded in these settings through grants, um, and through other unconventional ways of supporting these types of, of areas of employment or these different types of job roles so that we can be present without it being such a hardship on us as occupational therapists that it's not sustainable in the long run. Another problem or area that's hard to overcome is that I think that a lot of new students, new graduates, they're really the ones who are so passionate and eager and ready to go into these emerging practice settings. And it can be really hard and intimidating to go into an area where there's not another occupational therapist practicing, where there's not already roles and responsibilities set up, as a new clinician, you're really looking for more of that mentorship. And if we don't have OTs out there in non-traditional settings to mentor you, you get funneled into more of the traditional settings where that is available. And it's hard to come out of that and find your way back to non-traditional. So I think that another barrier that we need to work on overcoming is is really promoting OT's roles in these areas and developing ways to create a sustainable model of bringing new OTs out into non-traditional areas and having mentorship available for them, resources for them to support what they're doing. I think that's why there's a big push for the Occupational Therapy Doctorate to be an entry-level requirement and to really embrace that goal of moving occupational therapists into more traditional, non-traditional settings.
1: Yeah, so I know the doctorate has really taught me about a lot of different like unconventional roles that OTs can hold, but some of our listeners might not know what that might look like. So what are some unconventional roles that OTs hold for jobs? And what are some of the challenges that individuals pursuing these types of roles typically face? So some of the different unconventional
2: roles that you may have is you could be a consultant. I think that happens mostly in these non-traditional areas. It's very hard to have a full-time employment in them, but you can consult. um, And and in that consulting role, you're typically doing things like educating, advocating, um, being a liaison between the rehab community and the population and the institution, really advocating for the profession and for the people that you're working with, these roles are, they have a lack of definition, just like the OT profession in general, so we're building um, these new roles for OTs on top of a profession that maybe even in traditional settings lacks a clear definition. So I think that makes it really difficult for people to s- envision what it looks like, and to explain and articulate what these different types of roles look like in that traditional settings. And that makes it hard for us to to continue to push and um, and show our value. There's also other things like it, the just getting started. It feels like you may be in. Um, seeing so many barriers to getting that into these areas that you're constantly trying to overcome barriers that can be exhausting. And I think that's really important for us to consider how we can support people better and going into these non-traditional areas where we have more partnership, where we have more peer support, uh, where there's more opportunity for multiple therapists to try and work together. And more networking that happens between therapists and not just OTs, but other rehab professionals, other healthcare professionals to support each other in these roles. Because it's a lot for one individual to take on the role of consultant, educator, manager, liaison uh, in a new setting where you're really doing you're doing the job of a whole team as one individual. So I think that. The peer support and networking are important things that we can do in associations supporting that, like the state associations and national associations and other organizations supporting our role by providing some of those resources.
0: So you've made a lot of really great points about the existing barriers and you just touched on a little bit about existing supports like the associations and peer networking. Um, What other supports do you think exist for occupational therapists wanting to pursue this area. I, for one, um, think that us being in evidence based profession is very helpful because we rely heavily on research. And even though in these areas, there may not be a lot of research, there is still some and as years pass, more and more people are following up on the same topics. Um, But what other factors would you consider
1: supports?
2: I think that other things that are supportive of us moving into these areas are the, the advocacy that I'm seeing happening on both the local and the national level, as well as the the publications and the public knowledge about what's going on. There's a lot more talk and discussion. It's a lot more open how marginalized some groups are and what healthcare needs they're really facing. So I think that I would shy away from saying, though, the evidence is super important uh, for us as professionals, but I shy away from saying research all the time to OTs who want to go into these non-traditional areas because they're already faced with so many of those barriers and so much of that overwhelmed feeling. And research can be even more intimidating. You all know as students, it's, it's not always the easiest concept to wrap your head around. And it kind of scares people off. But I think that the most important part of that scholarship or research that people can do and that supports Their roles in non-traditional settings is the dissemination or the discussion about what they're doing, whether it's more in a formal or informal way, things like this kind of podcast or um, writing something for a local newspaper, um, putting things out there on a blog, anything that gets the message out about what's being done, what could still be done, and how things have worked and not worked, that's that sharing of knowledge that happens among OTs and among healthcare professionals really supports what we're doing in a more practical way. The evidence is definitely important and we want to keep building that body of evidence. But I think that even, even more supportive is just the that sharing and availability of knowledge of how to make this happen, how to make our roles work, and, and cutting down on some of that that time where you have to figure out how am I going to do this if somebody else has already done it and shared it in a way that's accessible to you then you have something to start from you don't feel as alone in the process.
0: Yeah I think those are excellent points and you mentioned uh public awareness and how you know at this current time it's increasing about a lot of issues that really matter. And today I actually attended a social support group that's primarily hosted by two of our professors at the University of St. Augustine, Dr. Petroselli and Ms. Marizita, which is intended to provide support to students during these unprecedented times, as we all know 2020 has been quite the year but today's topic was occupational justice. And they shared a definition with us, which also happens to be my favorite description of occupational justice. It's a definition by Wilcock and Townsend, and it's defined as the right of every individual to be able to meet basic needs and to have equal opportunities and life chances to reach toward his or her potential, but specific to the individual's engagement in diverse and meaningful occupation. And so during this time, I couldn't help but be reminded of the important role that occupational justice plays in many non traditional practice areas and how it's often reliant on OTs exploring non traditional roles to enforce it or to enact change. What are some ways that students and practitioners can pursue occupational justice in their day to day lives? That's a, a great question and very timely for everything going
2: on. I think that awareness and a true self-awareness where we're not just saying yeah of course this marginalized population is experiencing occupational injustice and i need to help them address it but where we're we're looking at ourselves and how we are perpetuating occupational injustices how we can be identifying occupational injustices that are going on all around us and what's what the root of the problem is i mean Discovering occupational injustice to me and and ways to solve it is really a very thoughtful and reflective activity analysis of sorts, uh, because we as occupational therapists need to be able to look at what's going on around us and identify the multifaceted reasons that that occupational injustice is occurring. And what we can do, identify what role we can have and what we can do to address those things. And that's an activity analysis in its essence. And But it takes a level of awareness and a, a level of comfort and being able to say that you yourself aren't always perfect, that those around you aren't always perfect, and that there are some things we can't change and some things we can't. But we're going to do our best all the time to try and make those changes happen and to try and advocate, educate and take part in being a solution to the occupational justice issues that are going on around us and to realize that this isn't an individual effort. And I think that we all want to address occupational justice, but it takes one, it takes a lot of time and effort and energy and really concentration. It's not just something that happens. We really have to work to make sure we're doing it every day. And it's not just an individual thing. We can't change the world ourselves, but that we are incorporating others. We're making others aware of what's going on. We're advocating beyond just ourselves and just our, our client and really taking it to the next level of a more social societal level issue than, um, than what we're experiencing as an individual or what we see experienced as an individual. Those are just as important to address. But we have to to be supportive of each other and, and really continue to reflect often on what we're doing to help address occupational justice.
1: Yeah, I really like the point you made that we sometimes just have to look at ourselves and see what we can do and just start those tough conversations, but super important conversations to ignite change. So going on to the OTD side of things. As a doctoral coordinator, what impact do you think the optional doctorate component has on the OT profession in relation to expanding less common practice areas? Yeah, I think that the
2: the capstone component of the OTD really allows students to gain that mentorship. Like I was saying earlier, that one of the hardest parts is coming out and not having mentorship in these areas, not having a support system, feeling like you're starting from nowhere. And the capstone gives you that embedded opportunity. And in academia, as I mentioned, one of the reasons I love faculty is that that's something that we are encouraged and it's expected of academics, of educational institutions, that they are supporting these types of efforts. And so you're in an environment as a student that really is gonna help you facilitate and and be part of the difference. um, While you're receiving this mentorship that you may not get once you graduate and once you're out there on your own, you're, you're experiencing it something that Somebody who doesn't go through the process is going to have to be figuring out for themselves. And in more of a silo, you're really experiencing it with a cohort of your uh, of your colleagues, um, which provides that peer support. You're experiencing it with a mentor who's knowledgeable about your area that can really help you identify and make the changes and and figure out how you're going to improve that area of practice and be a part of that area of practice. And you're advocating for your role and the role of OTs in that area in a, in a way that is more, I don't want to use the word prescriptive, but more organized for you so that you can take some of that load off of yourselves and really focus on the actions you're doing within that non-traditional setting. So I think for OTs, It's really an opportunity for us to to make bigger strides in some areas of non-traditional practice that we haven't been able to make before because we haven't had the setup as a profession to allow us to, to educate students and to get them to enter the profession ready to be part of those areas.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree that the OTD component um, allows for bigger strides, especially in these non-traditional practice areas. I'm curious, though, because last year during my clinical rotations, I became serious about pursuing a fellowship in mental health because that's an area I'm really interested in. I ultimately decided it wasn't the right time for me, but while contemplating the idea, I asked many fellow OTs and even PTs about the value of fellowships or PTs like to call them residencies. And uh, some people presented the idea that a fellowship would have been more valuable than a doctoral component, especially for a non-traditional area of practice. Basically that it would have made more sense to complete the minimum of a master's and then do the fellowship. What are your thoughts on that? So I have a hard time with the
2: argument because I think it actually facilitates our role more in a, in a traditional setting than it does in a non-traditional setting. We talked about the issue of funding and fellowships and residencies are traditionally, even though they're low paid, they're still traditionally is some kind of um, funding related to that, that you're given to be part of that. And I think that that forces us more back into those same traditional areas of practice, and it, I don't it, it to have a fellowship, you really need to have multiple mentors and, and a structure set up to allow you to to learn from and grow in a very organized environment like that, which it because fellowships and residencies tend to be more uh, long term, traditional practice areas. So I don't know that it helps us move into the non-traditional settings. I can't imagine having a student who is on a fellowship who can go and be independent at a community center and and do that as a fellowship where they would be getting paid because there's no funding there and there's no supports or organization in place to really help them and support them in a fellowship type of role there. Uh, I think maybe fellowships in those areas and in mental health, because we have more of an organization, more of a structure and a role in that, I can see fellowship being something you could do in that practice area. But in some of these very non-traditional being in a homeless shelter or working and with human trafficking victims in a residential facility, those areas don't have the supports in the organization or the funding available to support something like a fellowship opportunity. So I would think I think that the capstone component the goal is really to be more in these non, non-traditional emerging areas to push our way uh, to, to enhance our roles in these areas where a fellowship is teaching you how to be part of more of an existing area. And I think fellowships maybe are more for those uh, role enhancing and maybe even a little role emerging, but more of those role enhancing areas than a true emerging practice area.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see the distinction there uh, when you lay it out like that of being more role enhancing versus role merging, um, that the capstone actually allows for much more opportunities and creativity, uh, whereas a fellowship may be able to help you fall more into a traditional role, even if it is a topic such as mental health that's not as commonly practiced. Um, So yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the feedback on that. Um, So jumping back a little bit more to the capstone, um, obviously with the current situation and COVID-19, there have been additional challenges, but as a student who was seeking to complete my capstone project with the homeless population within a community setting, such as a transitional housing facility or an emergency shelter, it was really quite challenging to try and obtain a mentor, a site and a site supervisor for my project. Is this a common challenge for students seeking to explore OT outside of the norm? And how do you as a doctoral coordinator facilitate the process?
2: Great question. I think that you uh, experience probably more challenges than most students. And I think that one of the reasons that some students experience more challenges just how emerging practice area they're going. And in an emerging practice area like OT's role in a homeless, shelter, we don't really have, uh, that is truly an emerging practice area. And so finding a mentor and a site who will allow an OT student to come in, who will supervise an OT student, and a mentor who has enough knowledge to support an OT student in there is really hard to come by, and that's why it's still emerging. Um, Those are definitely the roles we want students to be going into, but it's also the hardest to facilitate because of those reasons. Other students who are in more uh, roles where the, it's more role emerging where we may have some type of presence and we're really trying to push in a different direction in that area. Those are places where it's much easier to find a mentor in a site. Um, it, it seems more natural to the site and to people who have experience in that area to envision what a student looks like. And so I think as a a doctoral coordinator trying to help somebody really get into an emerging practice area, the most important parts are to really help the student understand that their efforts are not lost. Even if the biggest thing they accomplish is getting into a site and just helping that site and that mentor understand the role that an OT can have, they've accomplished something in that advocacy and realizing that not every victory in this capstone is a, is monumental, is profession changing, but that these little steps into these emerging practice areas amount to more because now, like your example, now you found a setting, now you have found a mentor, a supervisor, and they can envision the role. And now the next time a student wants to go in there, they have it a little bit easier and they can take it to the next step and every student after that. Um, So what you may experience as an individual trying to push into an emerging practice area, it's the same frustration and challenge that any OT would face trying to go into that area. And the small victories of getting a space, getting some kind of advocacy and education out there are not so small. They're actually really big when you think about the ripple effect that they will have down the line as more and more students move into those emerging practice areas as well.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So a question that I get a lot and a question that I see a lot is why the OTD if you can still get a master's? So what types of skills do you think a capstone project helps a student to build and does the experience give a new graduate? I think that the
2: capstone experience helps students to build leadership roles. Uh, leadership within themselves and also I have heard from many students and I can see it in them it builds their confidence they walk out of their degrees uh, knowing who they are as a profession knowing who they are as an individual within that profession what their role is what their role could be I think that they see more opportunities and even if they go into traditional jobs when they graduate they see more opportunities for enhancing our role as professionals for enhancing their own selves as professionals within those traditional settings they look at their communities and their places of employment and the profession in general with more flexibility and more knowledge that they have the skills to make a difference and and to challenge what we can, we consider traditional OT and how we practice. So I think the confidence and experience being uncomfortable in some of these non-traditional settings, the flexibility that they learn from it, and um, their their own role identity as an occupational therapist is something that they really achieve, uh, along with some of the more practical things like how to build a program, how to assess the needs of a population, how to um, how to disseminate or d- translate what they're doing out to the greater public. So, so more of that um, education to and advocacy. So those roles as well, those more concrete roles. And uh, I think your second part was about, does it give a new graduate more merit? I think there it depends on what you're description of merit is. Do I think that OTD students are necessarily coming out making significantly more money or getting more promotions than an MOT student? No, I don't think we've seen evidence of that uh, in most settings, but I do think that it gives them an opportunity to grow as a professional uh, faster, to Get to the level of professional accomplishment that they hope to to get to, that they foresee for themselves, in the quicker manner that they come out, um, really knowing what they want to do as a professional and who they want to be, and that's that's reflected in their ability to communicate with colleagues, with supervisors, and um, to to advocate for themselves to move into new roles, whether that's leadership roles, or what a development of a program, whatever it is that makes them happy as a professional.
0: I really like how you highlighted um, the opportunity it gives students for role identity because with the capstone, there really is so much flexibility to focus on a topic that is personal and meaningful to us as individuals and explore that in a way that we wouldn't really have the opportunity elsewhere, especially without the support that a capstone Um, design offers you as having a site, a mentor, um, having advisors to help consult you along the way. So I really like that. And I hadn't considered it in that way before. But I think that that's such an invaluable asset to gain uh, through your academic career is role identity, because many people spend such a long time trying to figure it out or not having opportunities to explore it. And uh, this is a way to actually set yourself up for that. So... I think that's really great. Um, So for a student that is considering um, pursuing you know, program development or an advocacy project, um, surrounding unconventional areas of OT, what type of advice would you give them, you know, kind of at the start of it in order to help set them up for success?
2: The piece of advice, and I probably said this to one or both of you at some point, was to make sure that it is personally meaningful, and that it reflects what you want to develop as a professional, because if it's not personally meaningful, if it doesn't lead you to the goals that you wanna accomplish, you won't stick to it. And the hardest part about a capstone is really having that perseverance to overcome all the challenges that you're gonna be faced with. Uh, If you were able to move through these capstones easily, and didn't face barriers then we probably did something wrong in setting it up because these should be challenging they should push you Uh, and so you really need to know why you're doing what you're doing and it needs to have that personally meaningful uh, goal for you in order for you to persevere so I think that my biggest piece of advice for students is to make sure that they know what it is they're looking to gain personally and professionally Uh, regardless of what we say as a program or what the profession says the objectives of these should be, you have to come up with your own goals, your own individualized meaning for the capstone.
1: Yeah, I think that's great advice. Personally, having like a topic that I'm passionate about has really motivated me to get through because it really is a long process. And your first semester, it's so daunting. You're like, oh, my gosh, like, should I really do this? But you kind of grow more and more like ready as you go. So to conclude, do you have any resources or networking recommendations for existing OTs looking to do program development or taking that first step? into?
2: I think that one of our biggest resources is the professional associations and knowing that the network of people you may put. Out something on say community, which is on AOTA, and if you're part of the professional network, you can put a post out there. I'm interested in uh, doing basket weaving with a population, whatever, or, or drumming as you're doing, Kate, or um, working with the homeless population, Jessica, whatever it might be. You can search through those peer networking uh, blog sites on AOTA and see who else is working in that area. Post your own comments about it and see what kind of connections you get, because maybe nobody who is directly involved in that area reads your post, but they know somebody else who is and they forward your information or they give you that person's information. And just that um, because of the network, the size of the OT profession, And the amount of people who are part of the national or international, if you want to look at the World Federation of Occupational Therapy, they have resources and an ability to connect with people, OTs around the globe and your state organizations. They're all really good opportunities for you to have an audience of your peers who you don't have to explain to what's OTs role with the homeless population because OTs, already know. They already get it in some way. And so you can skip to the part of, I need help getting in that area. And and really connect immediately to a lot of occupational therapists who have similar goals, who know people with similar goals, who can help you experience that. So I think our professional organizations, the global, national, and local provide such a great opportunity for networking that isn't taken advantage of often enough, especially by students. Uh, students are usually required to be part of these associations and they're so reluctant to post because they're not sure that that's really their place. They don't feel confident in themselves to, They're not sure what to do with it if they do connect with somebody. And that's you should take advantage of those opportunities and really use them because we've all been there before. The people who are professionals on those websites, we've all been students before. We all know where you're coming from and it's really a good opportunity for students to integrate with the professional body at a different level.
0: I completely agree with you about some students um, not fully taking advantage of it. I think I'm one of those people. Um, I think it can be a little intimidating. But the more that I explore, you know, the different forums and the different websites and you know, on the few occasions actually interacting with other OTs that are out there practicing, whether, you know, here in the United States or internationally, the more my confidence kind of builds. And so I think that that is a really great resource for students to do. And really, when you look at it, you're behind a computer screen. um, And you can think about what you're going to say beforehand, which I think is really great and I, I think we should continue to encourage students to take advantage of I would also that. say that
2: what you just mentioned is really important to think internationally because while we may not be as involved in some of these areas in the United States, there are other uh, countries that do have a bigger presence in some of these areas that we consider non-traditional. And so in connecting with international occupational therapists may give you even more access to people who are in who are addressing some of these social justice issues that we haven't quite tackled yet.
0: Yeah, I have found that a lot of the areas that I'm most interested in um, that occupational therapists in Canada, Australia, and the UK, I mean, they have exceptional insight into a lot of the things that are possible to do with OT and what's been working for them and what hasn't been working. And so I've probably used Facebook more than the actual association of forums, but um, it's been really great. Just, you know, even casual conversations and, and picking their brain about different things. Um, And I think it's, it's very invaluable to have those people so easily accessible to us. And I think we fail to take advantage of it a lot of times. Well, Dr. Collins, do you have anything else that you would like to add to today's discussion? No, I just
2: think that, you know, just like you guys are doing with this podcast, this is a great way to continue to push into these emerging practice areas and these roles. And this is that knowledge translation I was talking about. So I'm glad to see something like this getting started. And I hope that you continue to talk to OTs in non-traditional areas and, and help to spread the word that... Everybody can do this. We can we can really push our profession in a new direction. We just need to support each other and keep talking about it.
0: Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and we value your time and your insight. You know, we we um, can benefit a lot from talking to those that already have experience and are out there paving ways for us future OTs. And so, just want to say thank you. You know, it's really great to have you today, and and for collaborating with us to advocate for OT in general.